You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hi everyone, I am Lee Gyok Yu, Program Director at Toronto Centre. This podcast is based on a recent Toronto Centre note. Toronto Centre notes are meant to provide practical guidance to financial sector supervisors on key supervisor challenges. My guest today is William Price, the author of the TC note on supervising migrant insurance and pensions, which will be published this month. William is a global pension expert and the CEO of D3P Global. William has worked for the World Bank, UK Treasury, UK Pension Regulator, and in collaboration with the OECD and International Organization of Pension Supervisors. William co-created the outcomes-based assessments and outcomes and risk-based supervision models for pensions and has published extensively, including the book, Saving the Next Billion from OH Poverty. William, welcome and thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. There are regulatory and supervisory issues related to insurance and pension coverage for migrant workers and their families. However, some regulators may not focus their attention on these issues. In your opinion, William, why is it important for regulators to have interest in building insurance and pension coverage for migrants? Thanks very much, Lei. And um, I think it's very natural for people to wonder why is this an issue that they should look at. So if you just look at some of the big picture numbers, it then becomes a bit clearer. So there are 281 million migrants in the world, and they remit around about a a trillion dollars a year. And that helps to support about 800 million family members. So overall, there's over a billion people involved in this, which obviously I think is a surprise to many people. But even those big numbers don't tell the whole story. So for certain countries, um, say for Nepal, the money from migrants is 25% of their GDP. Or on the other side, the host countries, sometimes migrants, particularly in Gulf countries, up to 90% of the workforce. So as soon as you kind of begin to look at the numbers, you realize the global scale, but also the regional and then the very country-specific scale. It's something that supervisors should think about because they can, because it helps the issues that they're concerned in, whether it's coverage, growing the domestic pension system, and also it has uh, wider issues, wider benefits for the whole economy. Thank you, William. A second question came to my mind. What are some challenges you would foresee if a regulator wanted to set up such a coverage for migrant workers? Yeah, well, thanks very much. So it's certainly not an easy issue, um, and I'll go through some of the challenges. Let me give a little bit of reassurance also. In the, in the note at the end of it, we give kind of nine simple practical steps that a regulator can take. Um, but before we get to those, let me, let me talk about some of the challenges. So I think the first thing is, when you're thinking about migrant pensions, migrant insurance, um, you know, you've got the core issue of pensions and insurance, and of course regulators know how to deal with that. But now you've got the cross-border aspect. 
And that means that within your home country as a regulator, you probably have to start thinking about working with some other regulators, some other bodies that you may not normally have to deal with. So the central bank, whoever's in control of cross-border payments, is a key one. Because there's no good having a great pension system in theory, but you can't make a transfer from abroad because it gets flagged by anti-money laundering or CFT issues. So there's making sure that you're thinking about the other organisations who may need to play a part. And then there's also a kind of public and private sector interaction. So many of the issues that we will talk about later in terms of data and ID and making sure that people can gain access to their pensions or insurance. You know, those are things that affect the public sector as well, because if you've got a a public pension system, a, a first pillar or a social protection system, that institution in your home country is dealing with people coming in um, from abroad, leaving, having to try and make payments. So there's there's a potential kind of um, win-win in terms of getting the public and the private sectors together. And then a couple of other things that we can explore in a little more detail later. So you think about the migrant as a consumer. There's often a very big gender aspect here. So you think about um, people from South Asia, for example, East Asia going to work in the Gulf countries. Construction sites, lots of workers there, typically male. Domestic work, uh, lots of workers there, and typically female. And so you're trying to think through the gender aspects of provision because you'll probably end up with much more concentrated groups of people than you may, may normally be, um, be used to. And I mentioned already the data and the IDs. So, you know, there's a big problem in insurance. It may look good if you're not paying very many claims, but if you're not paying claims because you can't find the people to pay a claim, then that's, no, that's not very good in terms of the value of that product. So you've got to make sure that it, you can get good ID and though migrants are potentially difficult because they've gone to a different country and they may be moving around, there's a real window of opportunity because, at least with um, documented migration, for a brief period of time, you have to have all of your documents, you have to have the passport, you have to get the employer, you have to get the employment approvals. And so that process means that if you can leverage that, it actually could be a huge benefit for both the public and the private sector providers. And the final real message is, I think, though there are challenges, the real thing is just to remember that you can integrate this approach into an overall risk-based approach that a regulator would take anyway by thinking, how important are migrants for my country? Am I you know, a big home country where I'm what's called an exporting or sending country? Am I a big host country where I have lots of migrants coming to me? And very simple to get the numbers on the flow of people, on the flow of funds. And then you're asking yourself, um, is the, if these numbers are big for me, what do I then do in terms of integrating them into my risk-based provision and thinking about the particular risks of this group? Indeed, thank you, William. There are different types of insurance and pension schemes. What are some factors for regulators to consider in deciding the appropriate scheme for migrant workers? Thanks, Lay. So um, this is one of the really interesting issues, actually, for this area, because there are some general, general uh, thoughts that I'll, I'll give. But it turns out that it's quite um, specific to the country and the specific corridors. And what I mean by that is, if you take, say, workers from South Asia and they're going to the Gulf, it makes a difference whether the worker is coming from India, Bangladesh or Sri Lanka, because their domestic pension systems are different. So in the Indian case, 
the NPS pension system that they have there, they have very good sort of world-class biometrically biometric ID. And so it's very easy to identify that worker. And then the regulator and the central bank in India have worked very hard on enabling the cross-border flow. So when that Indian worker is abroad, that they can make a transfer back home and back into their pension account. And so there's a, there's a concept of a non-resident Indian which has been worked on by the authorities. And so the real thing is to look at your particular home country context. Um, Bangladesh didn't used to have a national social security system, a national pension system, and it's literally, as of August, just set one up. And there's a specific category for migrant workers to try and make sure that there's a particular focus on them. A whole bunch of countries, including India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, the Philippines, have mandatory insurance. And so if you're a worker from that country and you're going to be a migrant in another country, uh, there's a mandatory insurance provision, which means that the worker will go with some coverage. And so that obviously makes a big deal for you as a regulator in your home country if there's if there are the presence of these kind of schemes. And then when you go to think about it from a host country, so if you're um, one of the financial regulators in the United Arab Emirates, and say, for example, in, in Dubai, the International Financial Center in Dubai now has a mandatory defined contribution pension scheme for migrants. More or less, I think it's one of the first in the world for a, for a host country to do this. And so they then obviously have a very specific role to think through in terms of, you know, all the normal things of a pension scheme in terms of the administration and the investment and the identification of the workers. So that, that kind of home host and really understanding both your home system, but also where your migrant workers are going. And it's slightly easier than you may imagine because you don't really have to think about 220 countries because migrant workers are particularly concentrated in particular corridors. You're, you know, there's a real 80-20 rule and you could look at the top five countries and start liaising and working with those countries to try and improve things um, for the benefit of both countries. And then the final thing, let me just, uh, a couple of things that, everyone really needs to think about. Obviously with migration, typically people come back to their home country and that means that you're, maybe you've got a product and you've been paying insurance in one country and then you're coming back. Maybe you've been saving some pensions in one country and you're coming back. And you've got to make sure that that cross-border transfer will work, both in terms of the money flow, but also in terms of the data and to make sure um, if there are issues in terms of enforcement that you've got a way that you can identify the people who are behaving poorly and that you can work with the your sort of partner regulator to make sure that you're doing the best for the, the employers on one side and the workers on the other. Thank you, William. Have you seen insurance and pension schemes that include all relevant sectors and or gender? What would it take for regulators to ensure that such schemes effectively serve the relevant sectors and gender? Yeah, so I, I started to mention a few, and let me go into some more details on them. Um, because, uh, so if you take Gulf countries, on the one hand, it's quite a difficult situation because they don't allow access of any migrant workers, uh, indeed from any country of e and any gender, to have access to social security. 
So it, turns, it starts off as potentially kind of quite a tough proposition. So it's not like if someone is coming to moving from one European Union country to another where you get, you know, bilateral recognition of social security. And, you know, the International Labour Organization works to try and have bilateral recognition. But what quite a few countries have done there is have mandatory provision for migrants. So I mentioned the uh, in the Dubai International Financial Centre the provision of a migrant or a mandatory migrant pension system. There's also within the United Arab Emirates and some of the other Gulf countries mandatory health insurance, often paid for by the employer. And that means that the migrant comes over. It's a kind of condition of being able to employ the migrant worker that the employer will pay for health insurance. And so that does lead to much better coverage than you might imagine, because it's obviously kind of a tough area. And this covers all kind of, all types of workers. Relatively good in terms of the gender, in terms of covering everybody. The conditions or the coverage is not quite as good for domestic workers. So that's an area where you know the mandatory coverage is good, but it's an area where there could hopefully be uh, some more progress in terms of making sure that everyone gets the same kind of cover. I mentioned a couple of I mentioned the Indian example where they've been working on linking the domestic pension system, private pension system, and making it work cross border. Mexico is another interesting example where the regulator, the pension regulator, worked with the remittance providers as part of a broader way to cover informal sector workers, either domestically or internationally. So that when someone is, say, in the US and sending a remittance home, um, digitally to their family, they made it so that you could also contribute directly to your own pension or to somebody else's. And, you know, we probably all have uh, situations where you're going to transfer money to a family member and some family members are better than others in terms of spending that money wisely. So the fact that you could make a kind of third party contribution um, is quite is quite important here. The other thing to mention, because there's such a big need here and obviously some challenges is one of the, uh, the sort of curious reasons that there's more hope here is at the moment it's extremely expensive to uh, make these cross-border payments, these remittances. So the average cost is 6.4% of the contribution and there's a United Nations Sustainable Development Goal to reduce this to no more than three and much lower. And you can already do it for less than half a percent of the transaction if you do it digitally in certain corridors. And so going forward, as the costs fall for the remittance, that unlocks an amount of money that people can use to fund these um, types of insurance and pensions. You already get remittance providers who sort of bundle uh, life insurance for free or what people call a freemium product. And so there are there are signs where you can see things actually working. Um, and perhaps the best example really most recently in the tragic events in uh, Sudan with conflict breaking out there, quite a lot of Bangladeshi workers had to come back to Bangladesh. But the government had recently expanded the coverage of their um, mandatory insurance project program to cover what they call employment interruption. Obviously, you know, if you have to leave the country for a civil war, um, that's employment interruption. And so those workers under the new coverage received quite a significant amount of money. And it was a very visible example of actually that you can make progress here and it can make um, the overall process much better for migrant workers and their families, but also for the domestic insurance and pension system 
because this is another form of having business, another form of getting scale um, and making those, those industries more viable. Thank you, William. Just now you mentioned about remittance services. In your opinion, is there a role that fintech providers can play to assist regulators in their administration of insurance and pension schemes for migrant workers? What kind of services can these fintech providers offer? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a real game changer, but one that needs to be done carefully. So, I mean, a lot of the things that we're talking about in terms of being able to enroll someone, being able to enable their payments, um, being able to give them access to their accounts and to make transactions, you know, really wouldn't have been possible if you were a you know, migrant worker on a big construction site somewhere or you're working in agriculture or you're a domestic worker. You may not just have access to the domestic financial system, but through the fintech providers, um, you certainly can have access. And um, so this, this, is, this is a big um, development. It's worth having a kind of note of caution because particularly um, anything to do with long-term savings or long-term product like life insurance, got to make sure that the administration and the investment management can work for not just um, one year, uh, but for multiple years, even indeed multiple decades. And so what you see, what we see in the most promising areas is you could have an innovative fintech provider um, actually working often with big global companies or large pension funds who have been established for a long time but don't really have the expertise in identifying a particular target market. So there was, there's one example where a fintech provider is working with people who are uh, working as delivery drivers in one of them in a country. They are working very closely with the delivery drivers and helping give them access um, through the various app-based products they have to financial services. But sitting behind that, um, the fintech provider is a well-established provider insurance, a global insurance provider. And so you see this this kind of partnership, um, particularly where it's linked to something more complex like insurance um, or longer term insurance and pensions. Um, and so having a good established provider with an innovative provider who can gain access and also who can be really good at understanding particular nationalities, particular languages, gender targeting, particular industries, um, that is, I think, a very positive way forward. Um, and also you can see sort of innovations, you know, as we've been looking at this, the travel industry obviously has already been working very hard to make sure that, you know, an, a national from a particular country could be covered for an accident in 200 countries around the world. It's very specific to travel insurance, but it includes some of the accident, the life insurance things that you'd want a migrant to have, and, and some of the ways that they've enabled the business models, the access, the fintech side of it, gives um, some exciting areas to look at. And then the final thing, I think I mentioned it briefly already, these kind of freemium products that you get you know, within a country where people are using a mobile phone operator, for example, and then if you you spend a certain amount on airtime, you can sometimes get some sort of free insurance. You often you also see uh, some remittance providers doing that, so that if you are working with a remittance provider, if you're sending your money through, then there's some life insurance. But it's really vital that you go back to some of these challenges and say, well, you know, so that's great, but what happens if your the work on the construction site dies? 
how will the family back home a know that they've got this life insurance and b be able to claim it and what you've seen here is sometimes um, in some of these partnerships the remittance provider is uh, sort of enabled by the insurance provider to be the one who then tells the family you know you can claim you've got this and helps enable their claim because the best form of marketing in the end is for people in local village which might have lots of migrant workers to just see that these claims are being paid and that people get money and that these products are real so it's almost kind of um, making claims as marketing rather than uh, traditional marketing so i think a lot of scope for things which could never happen before but just a message to make sure that people are remembering the kind of basics of administration and investment and that all of us are being um, on our guard about uh, fraud and cyber risk um, which is a perennial problem Thank you very much, William, for your valuable insights into the supervisory issues and approaches in developing insurance and pension schemes for migrant workers. We would like our audience to read the TC note you have authored so that they can tap into your deep expertise in this area. Many thanks for your time, William, and also thank you for authoring such an important TC note. I will encourage our audience to read the TC note, which can be found on our website. Please feel free to send any questions or requests regarding the TC Notes to publications at torontocenter.org. I'm here today with William Price and you have been listening to the TC Notes podcast series. Thank you for joining us today and stay tuned for the next episode.